Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this morning. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for giving us the word. Thank you for sending your son, most of all. But also, Father, thank you for mornings like this one where we can gather together in the unity of the faith to break bread, that is the very bread of life, to pursue freedom, to receive it wholly by your grace, motivated by your love, that same love that motivated you to send your Son, our Lord and Savior, to the cross to die in our stead, to cancel out that debt. For this, Father, we are eternally grateful and looking forward to being able to worship our Lord forever and ever. What a wonderful hope this is for all of us to partake in even in time and so we thank you for that as well father we do just ask for blessings on those that are less fortunate than ourselves in terms of health and availability of transportation even that they may receive this message fully somehow by your providence that they may be moved by it as if they were here with us this morning though we do miss them we are praying and we understand that your will be done. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, a continuation from Thursday evening's class titled, Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? And this is just the introduction to the series uh, part two, of course, having begun that on Thursday. So lots of good things in front of us in store for us as a congregation. Uh, just um, from a teacher's perspective, always remember that um, this pulpit was ordained to teach a certain thread through this book. Um, I have no problem saying that no one pulpit could ever get through this book in terms of everything that it holds and truth. Um, and so that's where these kinds of spiritual gifts come in. This particular one um, and the import of it for the church age believer. Um, so from a curriculum perspective, I'm just sharing. Um, just know that uh, even though we are and we do take these lessons sort of one by one, know that everything that's happened from this pulpit over the last eight years or so was for a purpose, and it was to get us to where we are even this morning. So with that said, um, last year in review, this is how we ended up sort of transferring into this current series. It was from 117 parts on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification, then we just tied up some loose ends with the so-called difficult passages, four parts on the Gospels in the context of it, six parts on believing, and then 30 parts on grace and works. We did a little wrap-up, and then here we are. And as I intimated on Thursday evening, I've been consulting with the Lord in His Spirit for months now, just wondering where we would go after such a tremendous body of work, of joint labor, where do we go? Where do I lead the congregation now is basically the tone of my request to 
the Spirit. And here was the indirect way in which he led me. Essentially, he had me looking at the pattern of Jesus' earthly ministry. So we look at Jesus' earthly ministry, and we're going to look at it in greater detail. We've already seen a good portion of it uh, as we went through that uh, wonderful study on the gospel. What do we learn after the gospel proper? So, in other words, where do you go from a curriculum perspective after you learn the central theme in the Bible? So you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what did Jesus teach after he taught the gospel in its propositional form? Propositional simply meaning he stated clearly, or he clearly stated the facts about the gospel. Where did he go after he had done that good work? In other words, after presenting the clearest possible facts about entrance into the kingdom of God, what did he do? The quick answer is that he began teaching in parables. If you know anything about the flow of his ministry, you know that he went from propositional form to parable form. So if you were here on Thursday, you know that parables are where we are going to go as a congregation. They're right here. I thought we were going to go there next, but he said, wait a minute, they need context. So before we get there, we have somewhere else to go first. And as our title reveals, it has to do with the apostles specifically those 12 that Jesus summoned to himself during his earthly ministry. And I use that language on purpose because we're going to see it again in Scripture. He summoned these individuals to himself during his ministry. So the note there right out of the gate is that the apostles didn't choose Jesus. He chose them. They didn't choose him. There were probably lots of people that would have loved to sort of, you know, hook their trailer up to his hitch, so to speak. But he chose who he wanted. And the interesting, encouraging part about it is who he chose. Because as we're going to see, they were some interesting people. Uh, they were horrible failures, uh, wretched individuals, self-absorbed, uh, egocentric. They were all, and most of you are like, yeah, yeah. Maybe he would have chose me then, because <laughs> I'm all those things. And that's the encouragement, is that he also, that's what we call a doctrine of election, right? God chose you from eternity past, knowing that you were all of those things, and you fill in the blanks, many things more. And so we are to receive encouragement, rightly so, from the simple fact that the apostles didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. So as we prepare to uh, take on this endeavor, here's a visual aid that I gave you on Thursday evening that's worth a relook. If Jesus' ministry were represented as a topological map, we would see a clearly articulated valley right down the middle of it. One side would be labeled propositional and the other parable. In other words, if we were just to take Jesus' ministry, you know, wrap it all up and sort of press it into a uh, two-by-two sheet of paper or something like that with all the content on there, there would be a chasm right down the middle. Half it would be propositional. I mean, these are the facts of the Bible. And half would be parable. Let me explain some of this stuff spiritually to you for those who have ears to hear it. Scripture tells us that Jesus came to the Jews, his own people, first. Go to 
John 1.9, John 1.9, that's what Scripture tells us, is that Jesus came to the Jews, his own people, first. And this is where the bulk of the propositional format of the gospel was presented. He presented it to his own people, and he was very clear on the subject. John 1.9, we learned a lot of that during the last year and a half of studies. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So up here on the board, his own did not receive him. This was the outset, if you would, of the first year and a half plus, uh, and then on, but formally the first year and a half of his ministry was just flat out met with rejection. He said, I'm the Messiah. Uh, this is the truth about your salvation. You're asking me about the entrance into the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven, as uh, the sensitive Jews might refer to it. Uh, the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven, uh, here's how it works. And they hung him. And that's incredible. So his own did not receive him. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah prophesied of in the Old Testament. His own people, led by Jewish leaders, rejected him first. They had the privilege of receiving him, but as a people, they did not. Not every Jew, that's why we can't say, oh, all Jews are bad back then. No, that's not true because the apostles were Jewish. Christ was Jewish. We speak of the Jews as a people being led by certain leaders, and it was that group that rejected him. So Jesus was very clear on the topic of salvation with the Jews, and so we say it's propositional because he asserted facts. That's what propositional means. It's an assertion of facts. There's no mystery. There's no real anything. It's just this is the truth, right? In math, you know, they use propositions in math and, and uh, logic. And if you ever had philosophy, I believe they use propositions there as well. John 8, 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's not a whole lot of mystery there, is there? He said, I'm the Messiah. And if you don't believe me, if you're calling me a liar, Matthew 13, if you call the spirit who convicts you that I'm he, if you call him a liar, now you have a real problem. You cannot be saved. You will die in your sins. And that's what he told them. And there was no real great, you know, hidden mystery there. In fact, and this is the part that's truly stupendous, but it makes sense. In fact, he was so clear that the Bible tells us that even though they knew who he was, they rejected him. In other words, they were more interested in self-preservation. And we do that in a little way every day, don't we? When we decide to self-preserve ourselves over what's good for the kingdom of God, over what's righteous in the kingdom of God, we worship ourselves, we worship our idols instead of worshiping Him. So we do these little things all the time as well, just not regarding salvation. So the pattern, in other words, is repeated over and over. Again, verse 11, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There you go. You know that salvation is a supernatural act. It's not from the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And I alluded to this uh, in general when I mentioned uh, our election as believers, that uh, as I've taught you in the past, not so long ago, no one comes to God unless he draws them to himself. So even the, the drawing of an individual to God is an act of God, is by the grace of God. So no one is saved by their will. God must draw them. And he doesn't just draw them based on the fact that they understand certain simple facts about Jesus, the Messiah. He draws them based on what? God sees the what? The heart. That's a big deal. Because that's exactly what is in view, specifically stated in the parable of parables. The soil is actually the heart. The first 1.5 plus years of his public ministry was specifically focused on the Jews. Again, his own did not receive him. God promised the Jews a Messiah. It was prophesied. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ. He clearly introduced himself through word and deed. I didn't know there was a kid here. Who's here? Oh, wow, he's got some lungs. <laughs> and they rejected him. <laughs> Once their rejection was consummated, Jesus' teaching changed from propositional to parable. And so that's all we're surveying. We're just 50,000 foot, just saying, all right, if we're going to change the entire uh, nature of this teaching ministry from propositional, which is proper, gospel proper, right, to parable, well, it behooves us to understand, well, how did Jesus do it? Well, this is what happened when Jesus went through the same process, if you would. So we can use him as a parable, so to speak, to help us along. We read the whole of Matthew 12 together on Thursday. Let's grab the highlight reel this morning. Go to Matthew 12, 7. Matthew 12, 7. <clears throat> Matthew 12, 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Um, there's a blog that you need to read on that, that I quote that scripture directly. So read it. But if you had known, he was speaking to the Pharisees, what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Remember, they were the ones who strained at a gnat. They were nitpicky individuals, religious, legalistic individuals, hung up on the ordinances, the sacrifices. And the Lord God just basically said, but you have no compassion, you have no love. You're doing these things for the wrong reasons, and I see your heart. And that's what Jesus was saying. If you understood that, you would understand me. You see, you, you're looking for me in the Scripture. These Scriptures are about me. And that's what he was saying. These people had, did not have the ears to hear or the eyes to see. After healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, 
And just as a side note, remember that the Sabbath was something the Pharisees used as an oppressive device. People were actually afraid. People were scared as Jews on the Sabbath. Now that sounds ridiculous. If you just think about what the Sabbath was meant, it was meant for a day of what? Rest. Instead, it was a heightened sense of awareness. Am I going to get excommunicated from my society, from my church, um, because I messed up? because I didn't do this one little thing that the, the leaders are telling me to do. That is not freedom, that's bondage. And so they took something that should have been good, the Sabbath, which was a rest, and made it oppressive. And Jesus hated that. So Jesus described the Pharisees this way up here on the board, Matthew 23, 30, 24, You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. This is no different than any religious, legalistic person is even today. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You're missing the point is what Jesus was saying. So, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Again, we're in review mode in Matthew 12. And this is how the Pharisees responded. Look at verse 14, 12, 14. So, he heals someone. It happens to be on the Sabbath. And look at how the Pharisees respond. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. How, do you, how can that possibly be the heart of God? To heal a person and then want to destroy that healer. I think someone's missing the point. And then comes the final straw, so to speak, where this, quote, chasm is cut along and deep down the center of his ministry, all of the propositions he had set forth up until this time would remain as facts that would stay in the memories of those who rejected him. And I kind of alluded to this for the, I don't want to say the more mature in faith, but those of you who may be a little bit further along in your studies. Um, the propositional form of truth was there. He had put it out there. It didn't disappear. It stayed there. And so those that rejected it based on you know, this body of knowledge would be judged against knowing that. Now, part of the mercy of God is that he started teaching in parables. Think about that, because the more you know, the more you're held responsible for. To whom much is given, much is required. So even in a sense... The fact that they could not hear anymore is a bit of mercy. Think about that today. Think about that today. Because if he kept saying it and saying it, judgment would pile up. Think about that. But anyways, it was time to begin specifically preparing his true disciples. So here we are given the turning point in time. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. After dismantling their arrogant logic, Jesus made the following statement that resonates to this day loud and clear. Look at verse 31. Therefore, I say to you, 
Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Some call that the unpardonable sin. Uh, that's the blasphemy against the Spirit. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And then immediately afterwards, we see the change in Jesus' teaching ministry. Go to 13.1. 13.1. So this is all the same day, if you would, the same time. Verse 1. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. In my notes right now, I have dot, 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 because we're going to get back to that. That is the so-called parable of parables, the parable of the soils. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And so we're going to grab and keep on grabbing some context because before we get to these parables, especially that first one, you have to understand who he was talking to, the nature of the circumstances, etc., etc. His audience, especially his apostles as well, because they were going to take these truths that they had ears to hear out to a lost and dying world after he ascended into heaven. So there's a whole other feature of apostleship that's going on. Jesus has not only been getting the gospel out, but he's also saying, I'm not going to be here forever. I have to train up my under-shepherds. So there's this whole sort of curriculum that's going on. They've been there in propositional form, and then they're going to be there for parable form. In other words, part of their teaching is, guess what, just like yours is. You understand? We just went through a year and a half almost of propositional teaching on the gospel proper. And then he's saying, well, now let's teach on the parables. And we're actually almost following the same pattern that the apostles got to enjoy. You see? And that's why we're going to enjoy understanding the apostles. Because they went through it with the perfect teacher, obviously the perfect shepherd. Sorry, guys. All right? <laughs> and you're going through it 2,000 years later. But it's the same process. So it behooves us to relate to them. So this is when he began teaching in such a way that only those with ears to hear would be able to spiritually discern. And as a side note, um, I was thinking about this, which I often think about this. As harsh as I sound up here sometimes, I love you. And it hurts me to think that anybody would stumble because of a challenge or because of the scraping noise or the, the pain, the agony uh, of being set apart. So just as a side note, don't feel like a spiritual failure if you don't understand the parables at first. Don't. As we're going to see, neither did the apostles. So, And they were believers walking with the author of them. Just think about that. They understood agriculture. They lived it. 
of that time. They understood what it meant to be a fisherman during that time. They understood all the little nuances that Jesus was depending on when he told the parables. And even they didn't understand them at first. You see? And so don't feel like a failure. Because you read the parable and you're like, I have no idea what that's talking about. What about the coin? What about the miner? What's a miner? What's a talent? Well, I don't understand. What do you mean? <laughs> so don't feel bad. Just go with it. Let him open up your heart. All I can tell you is let him open up your heart. If you've got any preconceptions about any of this, lose them. Just lose them. Faith of a child, right? So if we're going to study the parables, um, why not just get to it, I say, at some point? That was my question. Why not just get to it? Let's do it. Oh, yeah, parables, right? I'm like, yeah, this is parables. I had already done a whole bunch of work on it. I was like, oh, they're going to love this. It's going to be a blast. And he said, no, not yet. Here's why. Due to the nature of parables being word pictures meant to reveal profound spiritual lessons, it is imperative that you first understand the context. There we go. Oh, context. The context of the parable. Has anybody ever walked into a conversation halfway through and you've judged one person wrongly? Okay. Well, that would be the same thing as if we walked into the parables and judged something wrongly. Jesus was meant to say this, but because we didn't have the context of the conversation, the audience, we didn't understand where the audience's head was at, where the speaker was at, the circumstances, guess what? That's going to happen to us. So context is everything. And that's what he said. He said, I know you're excited about the parables, but... You have to understand. You have to teach them. You have to get them prepared, if you would. So do the nature of parables being word pictures meant to reveal profound spiritual lessons. It is imperative that you first understand the context of the parable. That's the speaker. Of course, it's Jesus. The audience, cultural norms, time, place, and circumstance. Those things all matter. Those things all matter. Um, our current lessons are regarding the apostles because so much of what Jesus taught was specifically for their ears. And it's interesting um, to note that some theologians believe, and I can't say they're far off, but it is speculatory, so I'm not going to say it's doctrine. But some theologians believe very firmly that even the miracles, not just the parables, but even the miracles that Jesus did, were primarily for the sake of the disciples and even specifically the apostles. In other words, Jesus was going around doing all these miracles and they were always there. So just think about those kinds of things. It's not, there's never just one variable, so to speak, um, surrounding Jesus. Up here on the board, more on understanding the parables. He who has ears, let him hear. Matthew 13, 9, that's what he ended parables with. This is for those of you who have ears to hear. Because not everyone will. Not everyone does. That's prophesied, and I believe it's Isaiah. They just won't have the ears. Since the Jewish rejectors were spiritually deaf, 
they could not hear the spiritual lessons encapsulated in Jesus' parables. However, the apostles would have had the most acute sense of hearing. Now, not perfect, but acute, meaning they would be able to hear these things. It may not make sense right away. You'd be like, I heard what you said, but I don't understand what you just said. Do you understand? What if I used like a really big multisyllabic word right now that I knew most of you didn't know? You might say, I, I, I mean, my eardrums went, I have no idea what you just said. I, 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 I could repeat the word to you, but I don't know what it means. So can you explain? They did have the ability to hear, but the Jews were deaf. So, you know, they, did, they couldn't even hear anything, spiritually speaking. So that's the analog. The apostles would have had the most acute sense of hearing. Therefore, it behooves us to understand the apostles whom the Lord gave hearing to. Because we can relate to these individuals. Up here on the board, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's scripture. Now, before we even get into the meat and potatoes of the proof of this, I'll entice you a little more up here on the board. Jesus taught his parables to unexceptional men. That's a key point. Right out of the gate, as part of our introduction, Jesus taught his parables to unexceptional men. The apostles were the primary receivers of the parables, and yet there was absolutely nothing remarkable about them, these apostles. We ought to be very encouraged by this. Go to Matthew eleven twenty-five. 25. We ought to be very encouraged of the fact that Jesus chose unexceptional men to, to carry on his work. He wasn't going to be around forever. He knew it. Um, and yet he chose these unexceptional, ordinary men. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus despised the Pharisees' arrogance. And so he said something. Go to, hold your thumb. Go to Matthew 10, 32. He despised the Pharisees' arrogance. 10, 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Remember how we started off? You will die in your sins unless you confess me, he says. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I often think about that. We were having a conversation before class this morning, just myself, DJ, and my mom. And we were talking about that. that this world is crazy. It's completely backwards. And I was talking to my family last night about the fact that it's so messed up right now. One of the problems is it's hard to give somebody the gospel because most people don't believe that they're sinners. They actually don't even know the, what sin is anymore. 
They think that this thing that they're doing isn't sin. Because you got the President of the United States, you got Oprah, you got uh, athletes, you got all these idols telling them it's not a sin. Actually, we should be elevating these people. We should we should uh, embrace homosexuality, embrace transgender operations, embrace telling people they were born wrong by the hand of God, embrace all these things, these perversions to the Bible. Therefore, if you don't think that's a sin. If you don't think anything's wrong with that, or God is opposed to such things, I'm just picking on the common ones. I'm not, I still love gay people. I still love transgender people. I don't agree with it, but I love them still. They're still human beings, right? But we're being trained to think those things aren't sins, but they are. So how's, how do you tell somebody you're a sinner when they don't understand what sin is? That's the battle we're fighting. How do you... How do you how do you as an evangelist say, but you're a sinner to an individual who says, but that's not wrong? That's, everything's backwards in this world. And so here you come with the word of God, which is called the sword, right? Hebrews 4.12. And he says, what? Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. So the Word of God is going to cut very deep wounds in individuals. And most of them, unfortunately, in my experience, especially in this area, are going to go, eh. They just literally say, I'll take this and I'll throw it in my trash can. Because it's outdated. It's 2017, mister. Get with the times, right? It's so messed up. And the sad thing is, is Jesus rejects those people. Because God the Holy Spirit says, you're wrong. I don't care what Obama says, or Oprah, or Dr. Phil, or whoever it is you're listening to. I don't care. I'm the creator. These are my rules. That's a sin. Go back to Matthew eleven twenty-five. So, I mean, you know, that's us today, but... Nonetheless, it was the same battle. I mean, the flesh is the flesh is the flesh, right? It's not like people didn't muck this up 2,000 years ago. Verse 25, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. What the Lord Jesus Christ offers infants is something much, much greater than what the Pharisees were offering in the name of God. What... Jesus Christ offers infants is something much, much greater than what the Pharisees were offering in the name of God. Verse 28, what does he offer? You ready? Instead of straining at a gnat on the Sabbath and you living in fear of screwing up and being excommunicated from your entire community, because remember, as a Jew, religion and government were fused. So if they, the leaders, rejected you and made an issue out of something you did to screw up the Sabbath, you might be excommunicated from the entire society that you grew up in and suffer shame and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that was their message. So people lived in fear. And what did Jesus say? He said just the opposite. Look at verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Yeah, because they put on a yoke. They put a yoke on those poor individuals that even they couldn't hold up. They thought they could. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
That's what Sabbath is supposed to be about, is it not? A day of rest? Are we not supposed to rest in the Lord? So he said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so you see this contradiction, don't you? The gospel proper, the the living gospel, Jesus Christ, showed up on the scene in propositional form, presented himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the Messiah. Unless you believe I am him, you will die in your sins. And then he says, "For for those of you who do believe me, who do want me, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I shall give you rest. You see the contradiction there? It's incredible. That's why he said, if you just understood that I desire compassion, not sacrifice. Now, if these so-called infants are his own apostles, where does this leave all of us? Well, can't we relate? Yeah. The point of encouragement is as follows up here on the board, and we should relate to these individuals as examples. I mean, these are the apostles after all, the ones that he chose. And look at all the wonderful things he did by grace through them. Jesus wants infants as disciples, not people who think they are already righteous. Luke 5.32. He wants infants as disciples, not people who think they are already righteous. Luke 532 looks like this. I have not come to call the righteous, you know, those who think they are, but sinners to repentance. It's just like I was saying earlier. When you don't think you're a sinner because you don't think that's a sin, in other words, if, if you don't think the stuff that you're living for and breathing for and doing is sinful, then you come to the conclusion that I'm not really a sinner. And if you're not a sinner, then you are now righteous in your own eyes. That's what he was saying. I didn't come to save those people. They already think they're righteous. I came to save sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, let's get back to where we were a moment ago regarding the transition in Jesus' teaching ministry up here on the board. Again, we're still 50,000 foot, just dabbling a little bit in the weeds. He who has ears, let him hear, Matthew 13, 9. Since, Jewish, since the Jewish rejectors were spiritually deaf, they could not hear the spiritual lessons encapsulated in Jesus' parables. However, the apostles would have had the most acute sense of hearing. That was the infants, if you would. Therefore, it behooves us to understand the apostles whom the Lord gave hearing to. Why? Again, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We just noted in Matthew eleven twenty five that these parables were to be understood preeminently by infants. Now that says an awful lot about context, first and foremost. That the context isn't meant to be complicated. It may require some explanation but it's not meant to be complicated. These are simple word stories with profound spiritual truths. That's what the parables are. The vast majority of them have one key meaning, and that's it. 
That's it. We just noted in Matthew 11.25 that these parables were to be understood preeminently by infants, not the so-called righteous. That parables, even today, are given to those humble enough to receive them, set apart as soil, prepared to get to bear good fruit in the kingdom. Now, here's our fundamental encouragement again. This one keeps coming up. I guess this is the underscore of the introduction, which is appropriate. Jesus taught his, his parables to unexceptional men. The apostles were the primary receivers of the parables, and yet there was absolutely nothing remarkable about them. We ought to be very encouraged by this. I was thinking about this, um, as I often do. What does a humble person, I was thinking about driving, you know, and uh, I've never had this particular sickness, but I've been in the car with, seems to be men. I don't know what the deal is, guys. Maybe it's a pride issue. What does a humble person do when they get lost in the car? Yeah. That would be the normal thing. What is the problem? Seriously. I've gone to almost to blows with, with men. I'm like, dude, what is the problem? Pull over. I'll run in the 7-Eleven. I have no pride on this subject. We're totally lost. We're going to miss the event. I'm all, I can figure it out. It's like, you're an idiot. Pull the car over. I don't know what the deal is. People are so arrogant. But the idea is that, okay, everybody agrees, a humble person stops and asks directions. Okay. So, asking for help. God forbid. Have you ever noticed how often the Bible encourages us to ask for help from the Lord? Have you ever noticed that? That that's the pattern? It's all over the place. But you see, only a humble person stops and asks. An arrogant person won't. So have you ever noticed how often the Bible encourages us to ask for help from the Lord? The humble person asks the Lord for everything. Now, I, was, I have struggled with that in the past, as many of you have. The humble person asks the Lord for everything. There was a time in my life, this is ridiculous, but I'm just sharing because I'm an idiot. I wouldn't ask for certain things. I'd say, oh, nope, nope. Um, I don't think I should pray for that because it's, not, it's stupid. Why would I pray for that? It seems stupid. No, seriously, I'd be out like on a golf course or something. I'd be like, oh, it'd be really cool to stripe this three iron to about five feet. Right? And the guy I was with was like, I forget how it came up, but he's like, ask God. I'm like, I'm not going to ask God that I can stripe a three iron to five feet. He's like, why not? You're arrogant. And I was, I was like, and then later on, I'm like, I'm arrogant. <laughs> For real, why wouldn't I? If it's stupid and God says no harm, no foul, he might let me do it. He wants me to turn to him and go, thank you, that was fun. But there was a time when I wouldn't ask. Now he's sick of me. <laughs> but it's true. Ask him for everything. Receiving grace is a function of prayer. Whether we are praying for ourselves or someone else, 
is on our behalf. Remember, you don't have to be on your knees. I mean, that's the model in the Bible, but you can be praying at really any point in time. Whether we are praying for ourselves or someone else is on our, on our behalf. The receiving grace is a function of that. Now, as we're going to continue to see, the apostles were constantly asking Jesus questions. It was one of the things that was great about them. They were, you know, I don't want to use too strong a language, but you know what I mean. They were bozos, kind of. I don't mean to say the wrong way. Um, but at least they asked. You can be a really bad driver, really bad at remembering directions. Did they say left on Smith Street or right? You can be a bozo. But if you're willing to ask questions, you'll eventually get there. But if you don't ask questions, you're just going to get worse and worse and more lost. So the apostles were constantly asking Jesus questions, and they seldom got it the first time or even the second time around. Go to Matthew 13.10. Matthew 13.10. So that's encouraging, isn't it? They didn't get it right away. So you probably won't. Matthew 13.10, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? You have to understand, you know, Peter and those guys, Peter was fishermen, a few others were fishermen, tax collector, those types of... These guys were not the educated people. Now Jesus starts, you know, apparently waxing poetic. Starts teaching parables, right? So they asked him, they came to and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Now you know you, you have to at least, and this is speculation, but you have to understand just human nature that part of them was curious for themselves. Why are you teaching in parables all of a sudden? I'm not really getting it. Right? So you know that being self-absorbed people, you can relate, that part of that was laced for themselves. Why are you speaking in parables? fair. Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. They're probably like, that's great, when that's going to happen? Right? (laughs) Seriously! This is the nature of the learning. This was an arduous task that took three years of walking with the Lord and Savior, the Logos, the Word, the author and perfecter of our faith the Messiah himself, and they constantly were screwing up and then asking questions and not getting it right, including the parables, including things they should have known and they didn't. Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Just because something's been granted doesn't mean you're going to get it right away. I mean, you've been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven too, but do you understand everything that's in your Bible? Nope. You have the keys, but you actually have to show up, knock, and it shall be open. Seek, and you shall find. Then all these things will be added unto you. All that kind of jazz, right? Hmm. But to them it has not been granted. So they've been shut out. Verse 12, For whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But He's talking about the believers there. But whoever does not have even what he shall, shall be taken away from him. His opportunity even to be saved eventually is gone. 
Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will not, oh, excuse me, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. Okay. Hold on. They would understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. They would understand with their what? Their heart and repent, and I'll heal them. That's what he said. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. This is the first word, repent. You don't just say, I repent, like a robot. This is a heart issue. Repentance, as I've taught you, is a heart issue. Verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. Okay, and again the explanation continues there on the parable of the parables. So he's already stated it once in short form, and then he expands it here. Why? Because the apostles didn't understand it right away. And he brings up the issue of the heart, didn't he? Even from Old Testament prophecy. A repentant heart. And then if you understand the parable of the soils, you know that it's about preparation of the human heart to receive the gospel. And the only one that grows fruit, that doesn't get chucked out eventually, is the one who's properly prepared. The heart that's ready to receive the gospel truth. And that person is changed and bears fruit forevermore. This is part of the context that he's getting into. But we have to, again, understand before we get into... See how excited I am about the parables? But he's reeling me back up here on the board. Whoop. Jesus taught his parables to unexceptional men. The apostles were the primary receivers of the parables, and yet there was absolutely nothing remarkable about them. We ought to be very encouraged by this. You've got to understand, these were infants. These were infants. And Jesus was preparing them to what? Take the gospel, as we just learned it, out to a lost and dying world. Take this gospel out to a lost and dying world. And you're going to be met with a variety of hearts. Up here on the board. Some are ready, some are not. The truth is that Jesus chose the apostles because they were simply ordinary. He didn't want fancy theologians. He didn't want the Pharisees. He wanted infants. He wanted simply ordinary people. As we'll discover in Scripture, I mean, I remember when I was hiring an industry, I would much rather hire a smart person and train them up someone who was earnest and humble. And when I say smart, I mean someone that's willing to learn. Let's put it that way. Not even the smartest. Just somebody that's 
willing to learn. I'd rather, in other words, I'd rather have a blank blob of clay than someone who comes in, you know, all self-righteous and, um, you know, whatever. In other words, Jesus wanted to mold these people. You see, the Pharisees were already self-molded. And they were rigid, and they weren't pliable anymore. Their hearts have been, had been hardened. He needed pliable people. Yeah, they were imperfect. I mean, you look at a, it ain't exactly the statue of David when it's a blob of clay, right? Or a piece of marble, I forget what it's made out of, but it has to be molded. But if it shows up as some version of David, you know, you're not going to end up with the statue of David, right? So you prefer to have a blank slate, and that's how we ought to think about the apostles, and that's how we ought to think about ourselves. If we're humble, we realize we're just a blank slate. It doesn't matter how much we brought to the game. What did Paul say? I consider it all what? Rubbish. I mean, he showed up like the statue of David in terms of as far as the, you know, the leadership was concerned. He was on his way. But he said, I don't, that's garbage, man. As we'll discover in Scripture, uneducated men understood the parables. The most educated couldn't. The apostles, especially Jesus' inner circle, Peter, John, James, were chosen specifically because they weren't educated. Jesus chose character, faith, and purity over intellect. So what about the rest of we infants? Up here on the board. It's perfectly okay that folks like you and I don't understand something as magnificent as the parables the first time around. In fact, it makes us like the apostles that we walked with, that walked with the author and perfecter of our faith. They didn't even understand the parables the first time around, and they were walking with Jesus. And the parables are actually pretty simply stated. It's perfectly okay, though, that folks like you and I don't understand something as magnificent as the parables the first time around. In fact, it makes us like the apostles that walked with the author and perfecter of our faith. And just reflecting a little bit there again, what's the key to the spiritual life? Humility. Okay. Do you know everything? No. I mean, it's kind of like ridiculous. Like, serious, it's kind of a funny statement, right? Do you know everything? The fact that anyone would even hesitate, even for a moment, someone would go, is ridiculous. It should be like, no, immediately, no, no, I don't know everything. I'm not even, I mean, come on. That's humility. Again, what does a humble person do when they're lost? They ask for directions. What does an arrogant person do instead? They drive around with their pride, wasting their time, and everyone else is in the car. Arrogant people don't listen. And... They don't ask either. They don't ask, they don't listen. It's incredible. But that's human nature. Jesus' parables are unlocked not by intellect, but by honest pursuit of the truth. The Holy Spirit will reveal said truth to those with ears to hear. Matthew 13, 9. 
The apostles proved this. Now get it straight. Don't say, I must not be spiritual. I don't understand the parables. No, no. It just says that he, you have the ability now. Didn't he just say that? You have the ability to understand the kingdom of heaven, the things of the kingdom of heaven. doesn't mean you get it right away. It means you have been given the keys to unlock these treasures. But God gives grace to the humble. So even though you're saved, doesn't mean everything's clarity right now. It takes time. And we're going to do this good work. We're going to get the context right. We're going to get the audience right. We're going to get all these things right. And that's what he wants from us. It's like, don't rush it. These things are beautiful. But they're not beautiful unless you get them right. If you overcomplicate them, if you, if you come you know, as the statue of David would, you know, let me tell you about this one and this one already, you're not going to learn anything because you're the same as the arrogant person driving around who won't ask or take directions from anyone. And that's your own failure. And that's what's been haunting you your whole life. And that's why some of you are still miserable in certain ways. Because you won't take direction. But the apostles did. Not always. But they did. Jesus would have to, you know, shape to put them back into shape. Get behind me, Satan! Oh, man. That'd be tough to take from the Lord. How'd you like that? Lord shows up this morning. Does a meet and greet. Oh, this is amazing, right? This is unbelievable, right? He says, get behind me, Satan. And Melissa's like, oh, what'd I do? You know what you did, right? This is going to be very upsetting circumstances. That was Peter. That was the quote-unquote best of them, quote-unquote, you know what I mean. That was the leader of the, of the pack. So he didn't want... Uh, Giants, he wanted infants. Theologically, we might categorize the purpose of the parables as follows. This is where he makes that divide between the giants and the infants. The twofold purpose of Jesus' parables hide the truth from the self righteous intellectual unbelievers, for example, the Pharisees, reveal simple truths to those with childlike faith, the apostles. Now, we need to understand the infants in view. That's this good work. Again, we're on the introduction. We're on the actual why stage. Why? Why the apostles? Why not just jump right into the parables? Because the apostles, we need to relate to these people. Because they had to go through the same training regimen as we are even this morning. They got the gospel in propositional form. They were right there. And then things changed. And then they got it in parable form. So we need to understand the infants in view, the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ first, before we get back to the parables. Why? Surprise, surprise. Context is key. Context is key. And here's where we ended on Thursday, up here on the board. This was a wonderful statement to end on. Satan's strategy is to make the apostles out to be superhuman and therefore relegate them unrelatable. Satan would want nothing more than for you to think that St. Peter and St. John and St. Paul and all these guys were so magnanimous that they, they should have giant statues made of them. They should be reserved for the basilica in, 
you know, God knows where. They should be reserved for this. We should be looking up at them in awe. Should we respect them? Absolutely. But here's the deal. We should respect them because they're humble. Satan's strategy is to make the apostles out to be superhuman and therefore relegate them unrelatable. However, in fact, they are the exact opposite. Jesus chose them knowing we'd be able to relate to them as fellow sinners who need a Savior. That's one of the magnificent things about the apostles is that we are supposed to be able to relate to them. They're wonderful examples for all of us. Of what? Self-righteousness? Self-made men? Uh Uh-uh. Grace. The grace of God. Because you know if God can do work these things with them. What's that noise, by the way? Anybody else hearing that? Make sure that door is closed back there. Jesus chose them knowing we'd be able to relate to them as fellow sinners who need a Savior. Forget where I was at. Is it closed? Make sure that's part of the protocol. Again, how about this? Until it comes back to me. Jesus chose them knowing we'd be able to relate to them as fellow sinners who need a Savior. I know what I was saying. They're not supposed to be giant idols on a stage. They're not supposed to be anything but humble individuals. Proof of God's grace. That's where I was. Proof of what faith, true faith, what true fruit looks like. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. We know there's a variety, but we know true believers bear fruit. But here's a perfect perversion with the Catholic religion. This is so-called St. Peter of Basilica in Vatican City. Okay? I'm just going to read from Wikipedia. Catholic tradition holds up that the Basilica is the burial site of St. Peter, one of Christ's apostles, and also the first pope. There is no pope! The pope is evil. I believe that he's way up there in terms of rank and file if, with Satan. He has to be one of the most evil individuals on the planet living today. By far. Him and Oprah. It was close. I'm serious. They stole Peter. It's incredible the perversions that people believe because they're ignorant and uneducated and unwilling to do this one simple thing. Read the Bible with the faith of a child. And so that's what people have held up. They've made the apostles something. Even they, Peter would be flipping out, saying, take that thing down. Take it down. That's ridiculous. Catholic tradition holds that the basilica is the burial site of St. Peter, one of Christ's apostles, and also the first pope. That is, I feel like getting angry right now. I am angry. Supposedly, St. Peter's tomb is directly below the high altar of the basilica. So I hope you see what the Spirit's getting at here right at the outset of our series on the Apostles. What he's saying is simple, that the Apostles weren't superhuman at all. 
In fact, as we'll see in Scripture, they were wretches, just like you and I. And these, my friends, were Jesus' primary audience for the parables He taught. Just think about that. He was equipping, He was training these 12 individuals. Now, crowds obviously consistently followed Him around, but He chose 12. And then He had three that were really close, even within the 12. But He told these parables to these individuals who were always around. The beauty of this being up here on the board, what the apostles lacked in intellect over the Pharisees, they possessed in humility over them. They may not have been the intellectuals of their day, but they were humble. They were willing to ask for directions. They were willing to ask for clarity. They were willing to submit, to surrender. They were willing to follow Jesus. They were willing to reject the self-life for the life that Jesus said when He said, take my yoke. That's what people don't, that's what kills me. That's where the love of Christ comes flowing through all of us. It's when someone says, I'm going to keep the self-life, what they've, what they've signed up for is a yoke that they cannot hold up. It's way too heavy. But it's mine. Yeah, I know. It's way too heavy for you. You're not going to last. You can't hold that thing up. I'm going to be like Peter in the statue. Because mm. he was great. Did you ever see pictures of Peter? He's strong. Mm -hmm. He's the rock, right? You're an idiot. But that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. Satan wants you to think that Peter was some stud that held the world up by his rock shoulders. That's what Satan wants you to think. Because that puts all the emphasis on the person instead of the grace of God. When the Bible tells us, uh-uh, these people were, were not special at all. If anything, they were wretched they were infants. But you know what they had? The same thing I've been saying from this pulpit for years. What's the key to the spiritual life? Humility. That's what they had. It's the one saving grace in the whole thing. What the apostles lacked in intellect over the Pharisees, they possessed in humility over them. Human IQ is often the greatest handicap of all to spiritual growth. This, I'm personally, I'm convinced of this in the Bible and in experience. That human IQ is often the greatest handicap of all to spiritual growth. As we're going to see in Scripture, the point on the board is very true. And I can say this wholeheartedly through personal experience, which, as we'll learn a little bit later, yet another way which the Lord trains us up, that's another thing that's been coming out in my studies, left and right, that did Jesus Christ sit these guys in a classroom? No way. He said, what? Follow me. And what did Jesus do? He went everywhere. And he ran into all kinds of people. Some that were open, some that were closed. Some that worshipped him, some that wanted to kill him. And who was right behind him the whole way? That's what a disciple means, by the way. Someone who would follow them. Another individual. 
They were. Where do you think the great education came from? Following. Living life. So what we're going to see is that he trains people up that way, and he still does it. What we'll see is that a, the smarter a person is, the more likely they are to get the parables wrong even. Why is that? Well, it's pretty simple up here on the board. I'll call these individuals the discouraging Christians. <laughs> this is very discouraging. Why? Because some Christians will tell you if you're not as smart as them, you'll never be able to be like them or Peter or John or anybody. The higher the IQ, the more likely a person is to complicate the simple teachings of Jesus. Why? To assert their sinful desire to dominate others. That's Teshuka. Teshuka means to dominate. That's what the flesh wants to do. In any angle it can get over others, it is going to take and is going to exercise. And when you're smart in a society like America that puts a premium on intelligence, guess what that's called? One big fat temptation. Hey, I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm a pretty smart gal. Seems like I can win this thing. Seems like I can, I'm pretty strong. I think I'm going to go on American Ninja Warrior. I can go make mil. I can go, I am the man. I am the woman. Why? Because I'm smart. You're arrogant. You're just trying to dominate. You're just looking for another way. If anything, that shows your own insecurities because only an insecure person would use that against a weaker individual. Only an insecure person would do that. Smartest person to ever live? Jesus Christ. What did he do? He served others, laid down his life for others. He wasn't rich and famous. He did things all the time that made people want to kill him. He didn't try to dominate people. He didn't come up to the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors and go, I'm way better than you. What about the prayer of the Pharisee and the, uh, I think it's the tax collector, right? Who's ripping, beating his chest. Thank Lord I'm not like him. Can you imagine Jesus Christ ever, ever making that kind of a presentation of the love of God? Do you know why? Because it's not the love of God. It's not the love of God. The higher their IQ, the more likely a person is to complicate the simple teachings of Jesus. Why? To assert their sinful desire to dominate others. The saving grace for any intellect is humility. Something the Apostle Paul learned in spades. Paul was very intelligent. Philippians 3, 2-9. Go to Philippians 3. i got to pick a spot here. Philippians 3. This is very discouraging. Why? Because it's the same, do you understand? It's the same vein of perversion of placing an apostle in making a 50-foot statue and then having this huge basilica wrapped around them because it makes an issue out of the flesh. You see, it puts people where they don't need to be. We're not supposed to glory in our flesh. 
We're supposed to be serving the Lord. And if you're smart or strong or business savvy or whatever it is you think you're so gifted in, if you're not using that for the Lord specifically, then you're missing the point. If this is all about living for you, the next thing, the next trip, the next haircut, the next shoe shine, the next, uh, I don't know, Netflix video, whatever you do, you weirdos, right? <laughs> whatever you do in your spare time that you, that you dominate the rest of the world with so you can have your little time, a little me time, and you have your little action figure of yourself, <laughs> right? Rah, rah, look at how I'm dominating everybody. Rah, rah. <laughs> Isn't that what we do? That's, we're, we're gross. We're gross. Okay, so Jesus was ready to go to the cross. I wonder which one is the greatest. <laughs> Three years with the Lord and Savior. Want to keep it down over there, Jesus? Go pray up over there. I wonder which one of us is the greatest. After three years. I can't even do this a second time. Tried the other hand, it still didn't work. After three years. So are you encouraged? I am. Philippians 3, 2. Now Paul came from another angle. So we're not going to talk a lot about Paul in this series because we've done an awful lot. We're talking about the original 12 they came from the fishermen, that angle, if you would, the so-called uneducated. Paul was creme de la creme. You see? Paul was the righteous one. Paul was the intellectual chosen one, so to speak. So we have both sides. And what did Paul say? Philippians 3.2 Beware of the dogs, and he was just as much as an apostle, Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence, no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. So Paul says, okay, let's play a little game now. You want to go toe-to-toe with me? You want to understand why I can speak the way I speak? Been there, done that. I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. I'm all these things better than you in my flesh. And I have all these other people over here that would have told you until I converted, would have told you so. I could have a lot of people speak for me, he said, on my behalf. But let's just play a little game. If you want to get all fleshly with me, let's just play a game. Let's jump in that sewer pipe together for a little while. Let's splash around in the sand together as fellow fleshly morons for a little bit. Let me entertain you a little bit with what I can bring to the table. And maybe you'll have a change of heart. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I far more. So we have the original 12, and then we have Paul. Paul stands out a bit, you see. Up here on the board, I far more. So just think, think of the most accomplished theologian today, if there is such a thing, which I don't like those things, but since we're going to play this game that Paul's playing, go for it. 
think of the most accomplished theologian today. If Paul were alive today, he'd annihilate them. He would bury them if forced to compete with them on fleshly grounds. Intellect, doctrine, you name it. He would crush them. He would bury them. He would embarrass them. If he was really in his flesh, he'd probably publicly embarrass them. It'd be a real bloodbath. And that's the very best that you can think of right now. If there is such a thing. That's what I far more means. You want to entertain this little thing you're entertaining right now? You think you're so smart? You think you're so excellent? You think you're so this, that, and the other? You think that, you think that a little old Paul doesn't understand your problems, can't relate to you because I'm just not smart, I'm just not as smart as you, I'm just not as good as you, I'm just not as strong as you, I'm just not as pretty as you or as handsome as you. I, I can't relate to you because I'm none of these things. He said, no way, I far more. You want to talk, you want to talk smack? Let's talk smack. Let's have a throwdown. That's what I far more means. Do you get it? And so he entertains this, the topic a little bit. Verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me. This is the awesome thing about Paul. So he comes in from the other side, and I love that the word in shares so much about Paul with us. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, being a little goody-two-shoes, being the intellect of intellect, the Hebrew of Hebrew, the Pharisee being trained up by Gamaliel himself, this guy being all those things. It's rubbish. So take your little, all of you, take your IQ, shut up. Take your little ponytails and lose them. I don't mean cut up, don't do this. Everybody comes back, shaved heads. Right? No one would do that. Take all your little, um, the, all, trust me, trust me, take all your little angles that you take in. Even some of you take them into church. Take all your little angles, all the little things that you posture yourself against the rest of the fleshes in this world. Lose them. Lose them. That's the whole point. Jesus Christ wants infants. He wants moldable clay. He doesn't want you coming self-made. He doesn't want you making an issue out of yourself about what God's given you by His own grace. What did Paul say? He goes, I had all of it. I had it all. And it's garbage. I can relate to him, and I'm not saying I had it all, but I had a lot of good things going on before the ministry. And there's a reason why I'm standing here for your benefit for some of you, would have thought, I'm so much smarter than him. I'm so much this. I'm so much that. I'm so much more excellent in so many excellent ways. Right? But you can't. Because I've been there and I've done it. And if I was still out there, I'd be dominating it. And you know what I think about that? It's crap. It's garbage. It's dung. 
It's garbage. You see, the righteousness which comes from God on the what? Basis of faith. You see, that's the equal playing ground. God gives grace to who? The humble. Everyone has a shot at faith, being given faith. Faith to believe, faith to press on, faith to do unbelievable things. But with God, all things are possible, right? Not if you're a, jer- not if you're a jackass. Not if you're an arrogant intellect. Not if you're, you fill in the blank, whatever you are. Paul's just saying, I was all those things. And I still count it as rubbish. Because none of this is worth anything except on the basis of faith. Up here on the board, and I'll close with this. Righteousness on the basis of faith. The standout exception we have to the rule, Paul, is most humbly stating that as smart as he is, it means absolutely nothing. The righteousness that all men need to need is a grace gift, not an intellectual pursuit. That's what Paul was saying. So Paul's sort of the exception. We're not going to study him in great detail, but I'm glad the Spirit added him. The twelve come in from a slightly different angle, more humble, fishermen, etc., right, uneducated. Paul came in from this angle. Probably recorded just so you know, certain groups of people wouldn't get too full of themselves. So the standout exception we have to the rule that we're studying out is most humbly stating that as smart as he is, it means absolutely nothing. The righteousness that all men need is a grace gift, not an intellectual pursuit. Amen? All right, I want to show that video. If you've been walking the same old road for miles and miles If you've been hearing the same old voice of the same old lies If you're trying to fill the same old holes inside There's a better life There's a better life If you got pain He's a pain taker if you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom, a savior, he's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. We've all searched for the light of day and dead of night. We've all found ourselves worn out from the same old fight. We've all run to things we know just ain't right. And there's a better life. There's a better life. If you got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. Chains, oh, he's a chain breaker. 
Father, thank you for a lovely Sunday morning to gather together as family. Thank you for breaking our chains, Father, and for those of us who are stubborn and arrogant and unwilling to ask for directions still, may your will be done in their lives. May you correct them with the rod. May you discipline them out of love, for that's what a father does, to set his own children straight. For the rest, Father, thank you, we say, for your encouragement. Thank you for making it simple. Thank you for reminding us that we don't have to be intellects or special by world standards. We just have to be humble. Thank you for giving us the faith that you've promised to those that are humble. Thank you for building us up along the way. And thank you for reminding us, as you do so, that we are standing in the light. That this world is filled with darkness, but we have the light. Thank you for encouraging us through the apostles your son chose to bring glory to you. So that we might learn from them and their example. We might relate to them personally to whatever degree possible. Why? To bring glory to you, Father. We humbly come before you in prayer and thanksgiving. We pray especially for those not being able to be with us this morning that your healing is quick and righteous and effective in their lives, be it physically, emotionally, spiritually, that they might return to us in fellowship with us, for we miss them. We just ask for your traveling mercies as we go forth. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.